Amen. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well today. Is it got cold on us just for fun, I guess. The weather likes to do that in Missouri, huh? Well, last week we went through uh, through a, a separate group of scriptures. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to go into uh, a new mini series. Uh, it's a very short book, the Book of Jude. Anybody ever read through the Book of Jude? Yeah, the Book of Jude. It's wonderful. Um, I've, I've been reading some and, and really felt like uh, like this was this was another book that we could go through. And it's really fun because it's only one chapter. So this is an easy book for you to read. Uh, very, very uh, simple as far as lengthwise. Uh, and the name of this series is called I Felt Compelled. Everybody say, I felt compelled. I felt compelled. So um, we're going to we're going to kind of dive right into into the message this morning. Uh, starts off here in Jude chapter one. Verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. I love how they start these letters. The way that they, the, the different people start their letters to churches or groups or people tells a lot about what it is that they're actually doing and wanting to accomplish. So this right here, it says the Jude, he identifies himself first as a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. This is something that, uh, that we can often overlook, that's easy to overlook whenever you're reading through it, because Paul writes very similarly, and so does Peter. They use a lot of the same kind of bondservant or servant or uh, some, some kind of language like this. But Jude right here, he does a similar thing in saying that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The, the cool thing about that is that someone who is called a servant in this manner, they're meaning that they have dedicated their entire life to the cause of spreading the gospel and loving Jesus. They knew that he was called to, to love the church, and so he wrote specifically, because it says right after that, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is really, really interesting. So to those who have been called, how many guys feel like you have been called to salvation? Amen. Who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is, this is very interesting. That you'll see here in a little while why this is so important, why he uses this phrase. He says, for those who are kept, who are kept for Jesus Christ. This is something that we, that we should feel very privileged that we are kept for Jesus Christ. We've been called and kept. The two things that are really helpful for us to know. It wasn't by the works that we did that, that brought us to salvation. It was the calling, the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Drawing us to Jesus Christ. That gave us access to the wonderful gift of salvation. Jesus by going to the cross. I mean, we, we just celebrated Easter a couple weeks ago. and talked about the importance of what Jesus did as he defeated the powers of darkness. When he went to the cross, died, and then rose from the grave. Defeated the, the powers of darkness over our lives. Offering us salvation, which is freedom. Freedom, not so that we can be back into bondage of, of slavery, of traditionalism or religion, but so that we can be free for freedom's sake. So that we can freely worship God in spirit and truth. And so we've been called, and we've been kept for Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Mercy, peace, 
and love be yours in abundance. When, uh, when I shared, shared my Easter message, one of the things that we saw from one of the seven woes was that Jesus displayed an act of mercy as he went to the cross. Displayed an act of mercy for us. We, we should have and we deserved punishment for sins and for the sin that we commit. However, the mercy of God was to send Jesus so that we can have freedom and we can have uh, the opportunity to also be forgiven and be forgiven much, not just be forgiven once or twice, a little slap on the hand, and then all of a sudden, nope, you're in jail. You're in bondage. We can have freedom from the sin that we were lost in before we knew Jesus. So mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. I prayed, I prayed specifically about peace this morning before we started because I knew that we were going to be getting into this. And peace is something that's, that's interesting. We talked even a few, maybe a few months ago, about peacemakers, right? Blessed are those who are peacemakers. And if you remember, I, I hammered this like three or four Sundays in a row, that the peacemaker is not someone who is void of, of hard situations or conflict at all. You know, when you think about someone who is, I uh, use this example over and over again, someone who is uh, dealing with conflict resolution, dealing with hostage situations, they go into a very treacherous environment. Also think about, for those of you guys who have, who have been parents or maybe anybody who's babysat kids, um, lots of times you may be walking into a room that seemingly looks like chaos, right? <laughs> the kid is just throwing toys all over the place or maybe they're just full of energy. And part of the responsibility of the parent is to bring peace to that child so that they're not full of chaos and full of complete recklessness. So you're like almost like a hostage negotiator, like <laughs> just on a smaller scale. <laughs> <laughs> when you're dealing with some kids. Blessed are the peacemakers. You get practice of going in and seeing that there's a chaotic situation and bringing peace into the situation. Now, there are many different strategies and ways that you can do that, but the beautiful thing is that Jesus offers us peace in the middle of our chaos. He was the ultimate peacemaker as he took what was a chaotic situation with the powers of darkness ruling over the land and and as we, before we knew Christ, we were full of, full of sin and full of the influence of the flesh, gratifying and satisfying the flesh. Constant chaos as we were making our own rules and forming our own order. However, whenever we were met with the perfect standard shown by Jesus, he gave us mercy and displayed peace. So that the chaos of our life that was in full-fledged fleshly satisfaction leaving a wake of destruction behind. Now, we have peace. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. For some of us, it's easy to, to receive mercy. For some of us, it's easy to receive the peace because that feels good, but it's the intimacy of love that is a difficult thing. Sure, you could be really thankful that you didn't receive punishment for what you deserved. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's so great. Then you just go on your way. Peace, it's wonderful not to have to, to deal with, with a lot of chaos and a lot of, you know, craziness that's going on everywhere. And it's like, oh, man, it's great to just be in an environment where I don't feel like I'm so pressured and so, you know, having to, to use my brain in all these different capacities and having to deal with all these personalities of people. And oh, it's good to just have peace, to just be sitting 
enjoying the day. At my house in the backyard, there's a, we have a deck, and we're surrounded by trees. We're in the middle of town, but we're still s- kind of surrounded by trees to where it feels almost like, like you're in a tree house just because of the thickness of the leaves and the, and the branches and stuff. And, and it's a really peaceful spot back there, and I can take my coffee there if I want to on Saturday mornings and, and uh, just sit out there when the weather's really nice, and it's just really peaceful. It's really nice. Not a lot of activity seemingly going on in the, in the town, and so it's, it's really nice to sit back there without being disturbed. And so it's easy for us to, to find those, those times and those areas. For many of you, you have your own spot or your own place that you would find the best solace or rest. And it's easy to do that for yourself. But then whenever you add the last section of that, mercy, peace, love, be yours in abundance. That love aspect that we, we can struggle with a little bit. Intimacy with the Lord to the fact to where he, he presses and twists some things internally, letting you know that there, there are some things that he may not be super pleased with. You know, Paul says that, that we've been given grace, but not to take advantage of the grace that we've been given. Mercy is, is amazing, but not for the sheer fact to where we can continue to go on doing the same things that we have just been mercifully forgiven for. And so to have the love that also abounds in that forever is to accept what Jesus did and then to say that I will reflect the same thing. The preference that Jesus has and the love that we're supposed to share with him is to offer our life just as he offered his. Except for Paul says that we're supposed to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing. Uh, there have been some people to where they're like, oh, I, I think that my purpose in life is to be a martyr, is to just go, go and die. It's like, I don't, don't specifically think that's your, your purpose. I think, I think your intention of wanting to do all that you can to the ca- full capacity of what you're able to is a very valid um, effort, and I'm, I'm appreciative of that. However, Paul tells us multiple times that it's in our living that we get to represent Jesus. He actually says in, in Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as I live, I'm going to live for Christ in everything that I do and everything that I have. With, with every fiber of my being, I'm going to pursue after Jesus. And then when I die, it's going to be gain. It's going to be wonderful because we'll have the testimony of a life faithfully lived for Christ. And then also I get to be with Jesus face to face. It's a gain for me to live as Christ, which is wonderful. And then to die is gain. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And then he starts this in verse 3. Dear friends, don't you like that when people greet you? Dear friends, hey guys, my people, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. We're going to pause right here. Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So it seems like Jude at first had intentions to write a very different letter than what he's getting ready to present to these guys now. Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that's a, it's a great thing to write about, right? Right? Everybody thankful for salvation that was offered to us? 
Praise God. It's amazing. Although that's what he wanted to write about. I could, I could come up here and I could speak about salvation every single Sunday to where that's the, that's the only message that I preach. But in a room full of people who know Jesus, it's, that's, that becomes... It becomes not super helpful to equip and to send out in the body, which is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to build up the body so that you guys don't just rely on church for your sustenance. But you can go out and you can be who God has created us to be. You can represent him and you can actually tell other people about, about the wonderful opportunity it is to get to know Jesus and to, and to remove the, the guilt and the shame from their lives, the, the burden of sin. And so he says, hey, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. This is important to, to think about. And again, I love being able to stop and, and read, kind of reread and reread and reread a couple verses at a time. I think this is helpful because it's easy for us to want to check the box of I read, you know, this much of the Bible today. Or I read this many passages or, you know, I was able to complete this plan or whatever it is. But it, at times it just becomes a checkbox again instead of something that is going to be dwelling within you. Something that is actually a part of what you believe. He says, I felt compelled to write and urge to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. So he's writing to God's holy people. For those, again, we talked, well, I did a whole message on holiness. The importance of God's holy people contending here. Contend for the faith. So he's writing to people who are already believers. He's writing to people who already are following after Jesus and who believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, who believe that he went to the cross, that he was the Messiah, that he died, and that he rose again and ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has been gifted to the, to the church. They believe all these things. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm writing to you guys to contend for the faith entrusted to God's holy people. This is very important, very important. Keep those things in, your mi- in, in the top of your mind. This is, this is the purpose of this short letter that he gives. He's writing to contend for the faith. So that means that there's something going on that's causing people not to contend for faith. And then he calls them God's holy people. A reminder that their activity needs to be holiness. That they need to be walking out in holiness. Verse 4, he says this. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, 
on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, it will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed into profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees, without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved for. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed and their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. We're going to pause here before we get to the, the next section. I love it. Bless you. Bless you. I love it whenever, uh, whenever writers recollect what God has done in, in past to remind people of what good deeds that God has done for them. To remind them of the faithfulness of God through the struggles and the times that they've gone through as a nation. Thinking back in verse 5, he said that, you guys already know this, but I, I just want to remind you of what the Lord did at one time, that he delivered his people out of Egypt and destroyed those who did not believe. When the people came out of Egypt, they went to the mountain, they received instructions from the Lord, they made a golden calf, they worshiped that calf. They wandered for a little while, then they got to the, to, uh, to, the promised land, sent out spies. They were told that they were supposed to have the land of Canaan. And when they sent out the spies, they came back and said they were huge people, <coughs> giants. And that these giants, <coughs> they were so big it made them look like grasshoppers. So they were terrified. They decided not to proceed. They experienced a pretty incredible sight when they were in Egypt with those ten plagues. I mean, that's a, that's a wild scene to be a part of, a wild time. And then not only that, but they had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They also had, had a, 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 some fire that held off the Egyptians from coming up to them while they were trying to go across, and they looked, and then Moses put a staff into the sea, and, and the sea split. I mean, these are just 
wild stories, right? Wild things that happened. But still, when they saw really tall people, they were terrified to the point to where they didn't go and take the land that they'd been promised. That generation ended up wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, and not only did it cost them their lives of wandering, but it also caused the next generation to sit for 40 years in limbo before they were able to get to the promised land again. And then Joshua was able to take, take them into, into the land of promise and they went through Jericho. That whole story was incredible. But still, when you look through history, you, you find out that God said that, he, that they were supposed to get rid of all the people that dwelled in the land so that they can inhabit it the way that God had intended them to. And they weren't tempted or, or, or convoluted with idolatry from the different nations. That, that wasn't something that overtook them or anything. But yet there were only a few of the tribes that actually did what God asked them to. The rest of them either coexisted or they decided to find a different place that maybe they could settle that was a little further outside of the promised land. And you find that because of that relationship that they allowed to have in Canaan, that it caused a ton of issues for the nation of Israel. A bunch of the ites that we read about in the, in the Old Testament and, and the neighboring nations that were consistently warring against Israel and coming around and doing all these crazy things and, and, uh, and, and causing idolatry to infiltrate the nation. All these things happened because they didn't follow the direction of the Lord. They disobeyed just in the inhabiting of the land. They disobeyed God's voice. Then their nation was ransacked, the temple destroyed, and they went through this cyclical process over and over again of somewhat regaining a position, but still people not wanting to follow after the voice of the Lord, his directions, forgetting of the, the things that the Lord had told them to do and their promises. There's a very young king that comes into the scene in, in Israel's history. His name is Josiah. He was uh, about seven years old when he took took the king, uh, the king's role, and he discovered some of the law and started reading, goes, oh my gosh, what, we are not doing any of these things right now. And then had to com completely restructure. He was in line to be king and had no idea there was a such thing as the law of the Lord. That's, that's a misstep. That's a huge misstep. So I love that Jude comes in and he reminds them that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. There's something that happens whenever we are just along for the ride, quote unquote, and not pursuing the action of belief in our faith. I'll say that again. There's something, there's something that happens whenever we're just along for the ride, just happy to be around 
believers to be around where, where the Lord is, is saying something or, or where you can just feel his presence. But, but there is a huge misstep in not walking out that belief. There were many of those Israelites who they were just along for the ride in Egypt, just hoping to get out of slavery. And that was the only thing they wanted to do was just not to be slaves to Egypt anymore. And so when it came, point to the, uh, came time for them to go to the mountain and to worship the Lord, they were quick to build a calf and to worship that calf, to make that an idol. When it came to the point where, where God was saying, okay, we're, I'm taking you into the land of promise. It's time for you to go take that, inhabit it, and eradicate the land of all, of all the ones who would be in opposition to my will. They passively sat behind and said, ah, I'd rather wander the wilderness instead of going to this land that you've promised me. I would say that's a lack of belief. A lack of belief to move into what God had actually declared and said for them to do and gave them the liberty to do that. We have the Lord saying, go and do this, which means that he is going to provide a way as you step out in faith. But when we don't have faith, then we passively scoot back and are content with wandering the wilderness. And by doing that, you don't just set yourself backwards, but you also set the next generation backwards. And the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. You actually teach them how not to follow after God's will. So it wasn't just that that generation had to, had to die off so that Joshua's generation can emerge and that they can, he can lead the people into the promised land. It's that they also learned how to complain, how to moan, how to whine, how to do all these things, and then how to also evade tough situations. So that whenever they did get into the land, guess what? Joshua and Caleb were two of the people who inhabited the land by eradicating the people who, uh, who were dwelling in the area that they were given. There were a few others that followed suit, but there were plenty others of the, uh, of the, the, the tribes of Israel who did not follow suit. And they just were okay with living in a place that also had other people who were worshiping other gods and doing other things like that. And because of that, it caused the next generation, plural, to deal with all kinds of strife, all kinds of worry, all kinds of, um, all kinds of missteps, mishaps, mistakes, all kinds of things. And so Jude is, is delivering. He's, he's not just saying, oh, you know, you remember there was an Egypt time, and then, you know, hey, some people didn't believe, but that's okay. Here we are now today. There's a weightiness to this word. A weightiness to this word that some believed, some followed, and <laughs> some did not. And they were destroyed because of their unbelief. Moses' generation should have been in the promised land. They should have. But instead, they all died in the wilderness. Lots of things they could have experienced and encountered. They could have set up a whole community, a whole a whole city, they could have set up their, their nice infrastructures. But they left that to the shoulders of the people who were coming up behind them. That maybe they would have the courage to face these giants with the Lord directing them. And then he mentions the angels. He's like, hey, look, people aren't, aren't the only ones who are guilty of doing this. But also, also the angelic beings. And we won't get too, too far into this, but my, Dr. Michael Heiser has some really good material over some of this if you 
want to dive a little deeper into this. But he said, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwellings, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. And then he goes here in verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. I think that we, we a lot of times just focus on the sexual immorality section of Sodom and Gomorrah. Rightfully so. I mean, they were, there's all kinds of stuff they were trying to do to the, to the angels when they were over there. Absolutely, that was not good. But there was also perverse activity that they were involved with as well. Not just sexual immorality. A lot of time we only, a lot of times we only equate perversion to sexual tendencies, but perversion is taking and distorting and contorting what was pure, righteous, and holy, and taking that and doing whatever it is that you want to to manipulate it. And so they weren't just doing weird sexual stuff. They were doing a whole bunch of other things that was very displeasing to the Lord. It's easy for us to poo-poo on people who are dealing with certain things that we're not dealing with, right? Hello? It's easy for us to look down upon people who are struggling with sins that we're not struggling with because then we could feel better about struggling with the other things that we're doing because it's not as easily seen or visible. But in reality, we're all struggling with certain things that the, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is working on us. It doesn't mean that you're perverse. It doesn't mean that you're sexually immoral. But it means that we're continuously going through a process of being transformed so that we can look more and more like Jesus as time goes. We're all going through different phases and eras of life. Once you feel like you've mastered one part of life, guess what? You're moving into another section of life that's going to also offer a new opportunity for growth. And so Sodom and Gomorrah served. In the surrounding towns, they gave themselves up to this type of perversion. And they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. They were completely eradicated completely annihilated in their place. Cease to exist. And he says, in the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Talking about these people who are within the, the camp, within the body. Again, now we're, we're getting back to Jude. Jude was warning them, hey, there's some people who have crept up in your in your circles of influence, people who have crept up. This seems to be a, an ongoing problem. You, do we remember the book of Titus? Do we remember the book of First Timothy? The warnings given about certain individuals who have infiltrated and who have spoken a different gospel that wasn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, diminishing Jesus' authority here on earth, lumping them in with other gods and saying that this is, you know, very similar to each other and, you know, we can expand our horizons of, of what, what it means to be spiritual. Does it sound kind of familiar? On the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse upon celestial beings. Seems like in our culture right now, there's a real big push to be overtly spiritual, but unrighteously unholy. They even feel like they're righteous in their unholiness. I could even, you could even say it that way. Righteously unholy. They're giving themselves permission to act in certain ways, twisting and perverting scripture so that it fits their own narrative 
so that they can appear to be godly with other Christians, but in reality, it's not, it's not the gospel. It's not Jesus. Many different kinds of movements. I talked last week about it's like Jesus plus this. The gospel is not Jesus plus enter in whatever kind of phrase that you want to. The gospel is Jesus. This is what Jesus did, and this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's doing inside of us, and he sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we can have a wonderful opportunity to, to, to commune with God in every single place that we are because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we should be a place in a position of holiness in our life. We should live from a place in a position of, of wanting to honor God with everything that we do and not just within a physical structure. So we see that these ungodly people pollute their own bodies and reject authority. And then he brings up this weird thing with, with Michael the archangel and Moses, the body of Moses, and talking about Satan. This is really, really intriguing. I'm not going to go into the nuances of this because that's just a whole different type of study, and that's, that's neither here or there for, for this message itself. But th something that I think that's really worth noting in this passage is that the archangel didn't come on his own authority, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't say, I rebuke you. Think about that. What standard was Michael the archangel using when he was conversing with Satan? What position did Jesus take when he was talking to the devil in Matthew chapter 4? Did he say, I said this? He didn't even do that. He said, this is what the word of the Lord says. And he quoted scripture. The authority we've been given here, and this is also in the Great Commission, has been given to us by Jesus. And if anybody's ever had a boss that has been a tyrant or, or not very great or, or horrible, many of them may not be functioning truly by the totality of the rules that have been set by your organization. But they wield this authority like they are the only person that has something good to say. That is an abuse of authority. We've been given authority, and I think that there are many times that, that there are people who may mean well, but they just don't know what the scripture says. And so whenever they claim authority and they do certain things, they do it outside of the will and outside of the realm of what scripture actually teaches us, even outside of the way that Jesus displayed it, which is why it's very important for us to know the scripture. Psalm 119, you read that entire chapter, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it complete it over and over, continuously relays the message that we need to have the word written on our heart. Another version says tattooed on your heart. That is something that is a process of meticulous it's a meticulous process where, where you have to actually sit down. If, if anybody's ever had a tattoo or seen someone have a tattoo, you, it, you don't just like, and then you got a tattoo. That's not how that process works. There has to be a design thought of. There has to be um, some kind of, a, of an outline. There has to be, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into tattooing something on somebody. Reading scripture, when you tattoo that on your heart, when you have that, engraved on your heart when you have that 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 soaked in to your heart it's not just a like a lick it and stick it type of thing 
It's not one of those. That's something you get at like Steak and Shake. It's not just a quick, a quick daily verse that you read real quick and then that's it. I did my verse of the day. That's awesome. This is something that has to take time. You have to be really deliberate about the way that you, that you, that you think about Scripture, that you read Scripture, that you study Scripture. So that whenever you're actually presenting the gospel to people, when you're actually living your life out, it's lived out from a belief and not just along for the ride. We're not following after the example of the Israelites who were in Egypt. In awe of the things that God did, but passive and scared when it comes to actually doing something themselves. It was cool when Moses could do all the stuff that God asked him to. Good for you, Moses. We're going to be really angry at you most of the time, but when something happens, cool, then that's awesome. Then we'll applaud you. That's great. That was pretty much the position that they took. He says this, he says in verse 11, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Each of these examples came from selfishness. When we seek self and we seek to gratify the flesh, then that will end in destruction and that will end in, um, in losing out on being able to contribute not just to your life but also to the next generation's life and to the rest of the lives of those who came after that. He says, these people are blemishes at your love feast. Very interesting. I'll give you just a, a little brief history about that, that phrase, love feast. Um, in the first century church, there were, they end up using this derogatively, this, this term love feast derogatively, because people didn't understand what the Christians were doing. They were gathering together, and they were sharing drink, they were sharing food, they were doing, they were having communion, they were doing all these things, and because <laughs> there was an outbreak of the Holy Spirit in some of their meetings as well, they thought that they were participating in some frivolous activities. They would also meet in, uh, in, in, in what are they called? Um, in like tombs, what are those uh, stuff that we see? Catacombs. They, they met in catacombs, and uh, and they would they would have to hide out there as they were being hunted for being Christians uh, before they destroyed the temple in in eighty seventy. And so, um, and so they would meet in these places, and then they thought that they were like drinking the actual blood of people, and then they were calling certain other things love fest because they thought they were having orgies, and there were all kinds of different things like that. But um, that was people's misunderstanding of what was actually happening in the communion aspect of taking of Christ's blood and Christ's body and remembering the acts that he did. But he said, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. So these people are, are, are not only infiltrating and being a part of the community, but, but they're staining the actual process of communion with God, with one another, as their only intention was for themselves bad shepherds. They have sheep out there, but they don't care about the sheep. They're just there for themselves. They're there to either slaughter or they're there to just get wool, but they don't help anything else. They don't tend to the sheep. They don't do anything that they need to. They're destructive. And then he goes on. I love this, this explanation and, and 
we'll close here in just a few seconds, a few minutes. He said, they're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. They're autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. So not only do they not have fruit, but they also have been uprooted, twice dead. They have no fruit that's being produced from them, and they have no roots. Think about that. No fruit is coming from the lives of these individuals. And they're not rooted firmly in Jesus, which would then tie them into community. So they're like clouds without rain to where they're just blown by the wind. When something happens, they're gone very easily. There's not a connection or there's nothing that, that solidifies them or causes them to stay or anything like that or to grow because they're not rooted and planted. And there's also no fruit. They just, they might have some leaves, but it doesn't mean anything when you don't have any fruit coming from that. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom ba uh, blackest darkness has been reserved for. I'll end with the last portion. Let's go to verse 17 if you could. So he goes and describes all these things about these people who have infiltrated. But then he says this. This is his call to persevere. He says, but dear friends, I love that. He paints this really dark picture of all this stuff that's going on. He's like, oh, this is horrible. This is not good. Think about this. Pay attention to this. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. So, step one. It's already been foretold that this is going to happen. That there will be people who will try to do this. So it's not like they're catching God off guard. Or that God is unaware that this was going to happen. And he says this. These are the people who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. When the Holy Spirit is not the one who is informing you of your discernment, then it's easy for us to take from our own past experiences and then to paint it like it's the Holy Spirit especially when you've been around church for a little while. You can use the right words. You can use the right phraseology. You can use all the right lingo. You can even have a certain expression on your face, and you can have open arms and all these things, but it's your own spirit that's, that's delivering that. And usually, if it's in the tune of disunity, it's not of the spirit. I'm going to say that again. If it's in the tune and the tone of disunity, it is not of the spirit. The Spirit wants to correct and wants to build. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in, the, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I love this. Let's say that again. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up 
in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. This is important. Keep your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. This doesn't just mean that you pray in tongues. Praying in tongues is good. I pray in tongues. However, when you pray in the Holy Spirit, that means you're praying in line and in step with the Holy Spirit. Praying is also not just you communicating, as in you speaking. Praying is you listening. We spend too much time talking in prayer when we should be doing a lot more listening to what the Holy Spirit's saying. So yes, we should pray in tongues. That's great. If you don't pray in tongues, then that's okay. I'm not going to berate you for that. If you don't have the gift of tongues, then that's okay too. I would much rather someone listen to the Holy Spirit's voice and obey his voice than say that they have the gift of tongues and just be able to blabber for a little while. say that again I would much rather for somebody to be able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and obey his voice knowing scripture than I would someone who can just say that they speak in tongues and blabber for a little while and not follow the Holy Spirit's voice or be obedient I think there are plenty of people who have been in charismatic communities They could even have the gift of tongues, and that's amazing. But they are void of following the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you do both, praise the Lord. That's great. But if you, if you claim to be someone who speaks in tongues, but you cannot follow the voice of the Holy Spirit, then I'm wondering what it is that you're doing in those moments. Except for feeling like you're very spiritual. You have no fruit. Fruit of the Spirit should be what people see that knows that you follow after Jesus, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are things that are fruit of being in the Holy Spirit. If we're not displaying those things, but you're feeling really spiritual because you say you have a gift, then I would rethink what it is that you're listening to. Again, this is not, I'm not trying to get into this whole thing about praying in tongues, but I, I think it's very important for us to realize this. It's good to pray in tongues if you have the gift. Wonderful. But praying in the Holy Spirit is not just sitting there and speaking in tongues. There has to be intentionality behind what we're actually doing. What is the purpose of you doing those things? Are we seeking the Lord in the middle of that? Praise the Lord. Are you hearing from him whenever that's going on as well too? You have moments of silence afterwards for then you can you can hear and you can intervene with what the Holy Spirit's leading you into. Praise God. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Keep yourselves in God's love. Again, keep yourselves in God's love. Be merciful to those who doubt. 
be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothes stained by corrupted flesh. Again, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothes stained by the corrupted flesh. So we can love the person and not the activity. We can love the people, even the doubters, and not like the fact that there's been doubting that has that has happened. Jesus was able to come down in flesh, live in the middle of a very corrupted atmosphere, live a perfect life, and love the people who are around there, actually administering the presence of God in a way that people were transformed, and then went to the cross, died, went to the grave, rose from the grave. That is incredible. Incredible. And so to remain in God's love is to do as Jesus did. To live as he did. Living a life of holiness, but being merciful to those. Not loving the sin that's happening, but loving the person knowing that Jesus can cleanse them of their unrighteousness if they would just submit themselves to him. And then he ends, Jude ends with the song, doxology at the end. He says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's stand. I think Jude's letter is, is, is a great reminder for us that we don't need to be passive believers. We don't need to just be people who seek after spirituality, but we need to be people who seek after Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's, it's just Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't be able to have the grace that we have today. We wouldn't have the mercy that has been offered to us. And just because there will be people that will disappoint you, that there will be some who are doubters, do not be like those Israelites were who left Egypt, who just wanted to see Moses do what he could so that they can get wherever they needed to next so they weren't in bondage to the Egyptians. We don't need to settle. We don't need to settle and be complacent in where we are right now. But we need to be excited to move progressively into the land of promise. And as we do that, we don't need to be just excited that our feet are standing on promised soil. But we also need to eradicate idolatry from our domain. all very poetic in what that can illustrate for your own life but but apply that wherever it is needed we do not need the next generation following us in whichever generational place that you land 
we don't need to make our mishaps something that will be even more detrimental for the next generation or for them to have to try to make up the ground that we refuse to till. We need to be steadfast. This book was written, the Bible was written for those who want to know Jesus. Shows a holy standard that we get to live by. That's incredible for us. But we have to be intentional. Again, I'll bring up Jordan Pe- Dr. Jordan Peterson says that belief without action is just words. You can go even further than that. Paul says that as well. <laughs> James repeats this. This is all throughout Scripture. Jesus mentions that it's the matter of the heart, intention, that really what ma- is really what matters. Not just the fact that you haven't killed somebody. Or the fact that you haven't maybe cheated on a spouse or whatever it is like that. That's, that's, not the, that's not the point. The point is where your heart lies before all that activity happens. That's, that's where it hits. That's where belief is found. That's where the roots run deep. And that's where you find if you actually have fruit that will come from the tree of your life. We cannot just be spiritual. We cannot just be natural. We are spirit, soul, and body. And so we have to be intentional in each of those areas, not to neglect one, to dwarf that area of our life. There have been people all throughout church history that were extremely spiritual and extremely gifted, but their minds were dwarfed in the way that they they tended to it and the things that they allowed in their lives. And it caused slip-ups and caused their testimony to diminish because they fell into sin, because they couldn't get it right. There were others that were very well-meaning with their mind, and they, they sought to do some great things, but in the end, they had no connection to the Holy Spirit. And so their mind only brought them to where their flesh was capable of taking them. We have to treat ourselves like what Scripture teaches us. Sanctification of the soul. the spiritual aspect of following and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Extremely important. Extremely valuable. Jesus, thank you so much for Scripture. Thank you for these wonderful people who felt compelled to write these letters. To record what happened in in history so that we can know what you've done. We can know the faithfulness that you've continued Just like we sang this morning, all my life you've been faithful. Lord, help us to look back and to reflect on the faithfulness that you've displayed for us time and time again. Remove any of the scales from our eyes that would diminish what you've done. Help us be intentional with the things that we do, with our words with our actions. Convict us in areas where we have have neglected. Grow us as a community even, even greater together. Let us not be satisfied with what once fed us yesterday. But let us pr- pursue what you have for us today. 
Lord, what, what's going on in the earth right now is it's a wild time to be alive. But we know that you're greater than any opposition or anything that the enemy could try to, to drudge up or try to concoct or try to infiltrate with our lives and our communities. Lord, help us be lights in this city. Build our homes to where they're strong. Bind spouses even greater together. And then bind parents to children so that the household could be strengthened and solidified. Let us not be passive people pushing off our responsibilities on others. But let us take hold of what you've called us to and what you've given us responsibility for. Let our lives sing the song of faithfulness. We give you praise because you're worthy of it. We honor you this morning. And we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray and everybody said, amen. You guys have a wonderful Sunday. If you need prayer, feel free to come on up.